hello, hello, and welcome, welcome. We are so pleased to have you with us. This is the August episode of Now and Then, Flato Academy Theater. My name is Randy Reed. I'll be here with you for the next little while to guide you through another interesting episode of this podcast. This is episode number 10, which we're very proud of to get to double digits. We're very, very pleased with that. August is an interesting month. It's the second month, second last month of summer, and it's also the month that my wife and I, who were former teachers, used to get grumpy because we used to we used to remember that, oh, geez, here they come. The kids are coming back fairly soon. It's also uh, the month that my son celebrates his birthday, so happy birthday, Jamie. And with us going into the fall season, it's a very quiet month in the theater, but we have some interesting stuff to share with you. So here we go. First up is our friend Ian McKechnie. Ian has been with us in uh, several episodes, and we thought it might be interesting if you haven't come across Ian in your travels, it might be interesting to have you find out a little bit more about the child. So here he is, Ian McKechnie. I was born and raised in Lindsay and uh, and Ops Township, and after graduating from LCVI in 2009, I spent four years at Trent University earning an Honours Bachelor of Arts in English Literature in 2013. And from 2014 through 2020, I worked for the Victoria County Historical Society up at what was then called the Old Jail Museum. And it was an exciting time to work in the museum field. We brought some previously untold stories out of the woodwork. We took exhibits on the road, both locally and across Canada. And we collaborated with community partners to bring history to life beyond the four walls of the museum, moving beyond the stuff in glass cases approach to curation that had been common for most of the museum's first five decades in existence. The centennial of the First World War was taking place during this period, as was Canada 150. Both occasions included opportunities to share local history on stage right here at the Academy Theatre. And it was during one of those productions that I first met our friends Beth Wilson and Renee Frank, alias Mary. And I think that's a reminder of just how small and closely knit the arts, culture, and heritage community here in Kawartha Lakes really is. And it was also through these productions that I got to know the incredibly talented Jesse Kennedy, with whom I worked in putting together Front Row Center, uh, the history of the Academy published on the occasion of its 125th birthday back in 2018. Over the last three years, I have been working in a freelance capacity, doing contract work for the Kirkfield and District Historical Society, working remotely for some heritage organizations elsewhere in the province, and working on some other research and writing projects in a voluntary capacity, including a 206-page book about my mother's family, which was published in 2021. That was sort of a pandemic project. In 2022, I completed the Ontario Museum Association's Certificate in Museum Studies program, and I look forward to working in the sector for many years to come uh, here in Kawartha Lakes. 
Since 2017, I have been a contributing writer to the Lindsay Advocate magazine, in which I write monthly columns on topics of cultural and historical interest. And in my spare time, I usher here at the Academy, uh, Academy Theatre, which I've done since, I think, the end of 2018. I volunteer at uh, the Presbyterian and Anglican churches. I collect and read books. I write short stories, play the piano, not very well. Uh, dabble in some model railroading, do some gardening, uh, enjoy riding my bicycle and going for walks. And that's a little bit about uh, Ian McKechnie. Thank you, sir. Today we are at the Academy Theatre and we have uh, Jesse Kennedy and we're going to be talking about a great book that I have used right from the get-go as a research manual for this podcast. It's called Front Row Centre and it, the official name is a pictorial and narrative chronicle of the history of the Academy Theatre and it was put together in 2018 by these two people. Um, to commemorate the 125th anniversary of the theatre. So we're very pleased to have you with us. Jesse, tell us first of all how this, this initiative came to be. Uh, well, the project started uh, with a federal grant that the board at that time, and specifically Valmay Barkey, um, had been able to secure the New Horizons grant. And the premise of that was, was to initiate projects involving senior citizens and, and ultimately um, intergenerational uh, work. And so in this case, the project started in a sort of modest way and over one meeting sort of became a lot more. And so the thought initially, I think, was that we put together a pamphlet, you know, some highlights, and that we perhaps tour a little um, sort of history vignette kind of um, you know, showcase to perhaps different community centers or um, retirement residences. But over the course of a meeting that really changed into a book and a full-scale production um, that were both sort of hap happening at the same time. They were developed over, over a year. So we started in 2017 with some of laying the groundwork for the, the book, doing research, interviews, and then uh, and then getting more serious into writing the, the production, getting people on board for that. That's great. That's really, really special. Um, and how did Ian become involved? Um, well, as we sort of looked through, uh, well, first of all, we, I had a round table um, conversation with uh, as many people who I could think of um, who were involved in the history of the theater, sort of the um, octogenarians and uh, senior yeah. citizens who would have the longest memory because it was going to be a project about the community. It had to start with the community voices. Right. So um, we had a conversation um, with about 10 people on the stage um, and just had a conversation about you know, what were your key memories and what was your involvement in the theatre and things that stood out for people who, again, have been around the longest. And so from that information, um, I also conducted individual interviews and asked people, you know, if, if what, what would your have-to things be, like the most important things that we couldn't leave out 
of this book, of this story. And so from that, as well as from just, you know, looking through the archives and looking at sort of hardcore artifacts, um, we sort of assembled um, a list of the must-have parts of the theater's history. And as we were saying earlier, it's vast. So we had to be a little bit discerning about, about what we included, but also wanting to include as much as we could. And so basically when we, when we came up with this um, sort of roster of our most uh, important things of the decades, um, there are certain areas where I thought it would be really helpful if people, if it wasn't just my voice, if it was a book that was many, many voices once again, because it was a community initiative. So Ian uh, came on board to cover some of the areas of the book. Um, uh, Ray Fleming also wrote some. Um, there, there's various different contributors in the book, as well as people who wrote smaller memories that um, sort of comprise the, these narratives that are really can't be captured in any other way other than through those people's individual voices. Right. Yeah. I was so pleased to be a part of it with my little my little bit about my dad. Mm -hmm. So that was great. Um, and I've had one of the one of the benefits for me doing this podcast. Um, I already knew Ray Marshall from years and years, but uh, sitting down with Jim Brown for an hour, mm -hmm. talking to him about the memories, um, Ray Tangney, um, Doug Tangney, sorry, uh, going through all these different people that have been involved in the theater for years and years. Mm -hmm. It's it's really wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and um, with, with the book itself, um, it, I'm trying to think of a better way to put this, but it's been so important to me um, to have this kind of resource. Um, going back to the library, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm constantly looking for, for different sources of material, but I keep coming back to this book, so good for you. Congratulations. Well, thank you. I think that one of the um, one of the important aspects for me of this book was to take all of these bits and pieces that we can get from various different places. So the oldest artifacts that we have are at the library. Yes. Um, they have a great vertical file there. Um, but also, I mean, having worked here at the last year of Court the Summer Theater, the third floor was always a treasure trove of right. things that were kind of just sitting there. And uh, they had, there was a history file, but, you know, as time went on and the digital age sort of became the, the norm, um, those things are at risk of, you know, deteriorating. So right. just um, being able to capture as much um, of those things as possible, the actual documents that were up there uh, in this digital form. Well, this is not a digital form, but in the right. book that will, in a one place that would be able to be accessed by lots of people and not just some, you know, intern <laughs> in the exactly. summer, yeah. you know, was really important. Well, that's great. And funny you should mention that because Ian and I were just talking about that, spending a day or two up there um, just going through some stuff because there's just tons of material. It's amazing. So. Mm -hmm. And there used to be um, a sort of interesting history um, board downstairs, and you could sort of flip through it. It was a vert these vertical I remember images. That. They were yeah. great big, like newspaper articles. Yes. And yes. And uh, they were originals, probably. And um, I remember when I came here for that last summer, of course, the summer theater, so looking through it one day, and there was this 
big picture of my grandfather and Leslie yeah. Frost um, at the, uh, you know, the unveiling of the theater in the, in '64. Um, so I mean, there's definitely a personal connection to for for me, and wanting to do as much, um, wanting to do a good job and um, just represent these memories, decades and decades of memories of people's lives. Um, it was just such a meaningful exercise to do that. And especially during the um, performance, we had, uh, it was a multimedia performance. So we had live um, actors on stage, musicians dance, but we also had these interview moments and we were able to project um, images of from the past. And that's a really special thing to look at pictures of Nell Holden, who was the, uh, the mayor's wife at the time uh, in 64 when the theater reopened after refurbishments and uh, when she was a young person and in right. this special moment and then see her at intermission you know i can't remember how old she was they're probably 90. um <laughs> you know and that's really meaningful to Absolutely. have that many and to have a place even where so many different people can point to different points in their lives and these different um, you know, strains of experience that are all braided together in one place. That's a really special thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I've been trying to do over the over the months too is to contact the families um, who are so important in this place now, but have been involved in the theater for years and years. The Emerys and the and the the Morrisons and the you know on and on it goes the last 20 or 30 years mm -hmm. um, and that's what keeps that's what keeps the, the place going it mm -hmm. really is you know so. you know I'm reaching out to to people who are not in our community anymore but who still hold have such memories of yes. this place um, yeah. like Frank Proctor I interviewed him uh, Diane Nyland Proctor's husband yeah. um, she had passed away by the time we were doing this project um, but just remembered lots of funny stories and you know just recalling the specialness of this place um, not just for theater history in Ontario but also for as the beginning sort of training ground for a lot of young equity actors who got their equity card Absolutely. by acting here Absolutely. and costume designers set designers it was um, a really important training place for people and it was fun it was just so much fun yeah. uh, you know even though it was only a part of one season the energy that is part of summer theater is different than other other theaters yes. and um, it was amazing that it was able to be in existence for as long as it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Jesse, thank you so much for coming out. I appreciate all the stories and I'm sure we'll be uh, contacting you again for, for more stories as we go through this thing. Thank you. You bet. My pleasure. We are here once again with our friend Ian McKechnie, and we're going to be delving back um, into the early history of the theater. Um, when it first opened in the late 1800s, it was predominantly um, a vaudeville house, but then as vaudeville kind of slowly died out, it transitioned, the theater I'm talking about, the theater transitioned into a movie house. And we're going to be talking about the movie house um, aspect of the Academy 
uh, for the next two or three episodes. So uh, welcome, Ian. And we're going to start up by talking about the, uh, the Academy Theater in the 1920s. Yeah, thank you, Randy. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, vaudeville, by about the First World War into the early 20s, um, had sort of seen its day. And uh, just before the war, sort of circa 1912, 1913, um, moving pictures were beginning to make their presence felt here at the theater. There is evidence that during the the war years, 1914 to 1918, uh, newsreels and other short films, propaganda films were shown on the big screen here. Uh, It's also important to remember that uh, films and uh, and movies of that time period were were silent, um, no sound. And until the advent of sound um, in films, and those were called talkies, um, music was provided uh, by an orchestra or a piano. And here at the Academy Theatre, the orchestra that would have been used to provide accompaniment during the vaudeville shows was also used for um, for the silent movies. Occasionally, they might use a piano. The Academy, I don't think, was ever large enough or wealthy enough to have a theater pipe organ, which some of the big um, theaters in the cities did, um, which would have been pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But uh, during the uh, during the silent film era, a fellow named Art Hooper and and others um, conducted an orchestra. They sat in a pit down at the front of the stage, and in addition to traditional orchestral instruments, um, they would have had different sort of sound effects, and that would have um, those would have been created through musical instruments, but also through ordinary objects to make you know like clatters and bells and banging noises. Rifle shots. And... Rifle shots. And as they <laughs> say in the, yeah. the larger cities, all of that would have been controlled from an organ console. Right. But in a smaller community, you may do with uh, your local um, band of talented orchestral <laughs> musicians and occasionally a pianist. That'd be great fun to listen to, actually, if you could get a hold of some of those old... old um... The, the the history of the of the actual orchestra. Um, I wonder if any of that is still around. Um, back in um, the in the twenties, um, the films actually were transported up here. The actual reels were transported up here by train. Yeah, and uh, occasionally the train would be late. So in nineteen twenty, there was a train wreck uh, down in western Ontario or southwestern Ontario. And this delayed the arrival of a movie called The Vanishing Dagger in time for a screening on Friday, December 3rd. So people who wanted to go and see the show that night, they had to wait until the following Monday when the film reel had arrived and was set up and all was ready to go. The the films would would be shown for two or three days as a rule? Yeah. That they'd be shown for, you know, say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then they'd be packed up and uh, they'd be taken uh, down the line to the next community. Um, so, for example, in December 1920, uh, in addition to The Vanishing Dagger, um, patrons at the Academy were able to watch The Dark Mirror, starring Dorothy Dalton, and a show called uh, La La Lucille, starring Eddie Lyons and Lee uh, Moran. and uh, this latter film was a five-reel feature. Some of them were only a couple of reels long. 
How long do you think, or do you have any idea how long a reel would be, typically? Not, uh, not off the top of my head. Um, there were very short uh, films that would um, maybe be only a few minutes in length, or the right. newsreels, the and news then there would be the longer yeah. feature, and right. presumably the longer feature would be a little bit more pricey, yeah. both to rent and to go and see. Right. Um, also in December of 1920, um, an interesting project happened here in Lindsay on the stage of the Academy. Yeah, a, uh, a guy named G.W. Brownridge was uh, really keen to show ordinary people, uh, ordinary, like lay people, how movies were made. Um, and we have to remember in the 20s, um, the movie industry was really just getting off its feet. It was very much, it was like electricity. It was a, it was a novelty, it was a new phenomenon. So in December of 1920, uh, an advertisement was printed in the paper saying that amateur actors from, uh, from Lindsay and area uh, had the opportunity to star in a short comedy called Joshua Comes to Town. And the advertising in the uh, Evening Post read as follows. Just what you have been clamoring for, to see movies made, the stage of the Academy is turned into a complete studio, complete with directors, electricians, and cameramen. Comedy movie before your very eyes, using a cast of all local talent and taking scenes of the audience at every performance. Not really sure what that means. <laughs> Exterior scenes made on the street during the day. Performers desirous of entering the movies apply at once. And this Mr. Brownridge, um, he did this in Lindsay, but earlier in that, in the same week, uh, he was down in Kingston with the same sort of program. Local talent signed up and they went and did their thing and they made this, uh, this short movie. I'll bet you it was really popular too. Yeah, um, and I think it's something that speaks again to one of the significant features of this building, this institution, is that yes, we have some of the big names that appear on the stage and in the movies. Yep. But we also care a great deal, our community cares a great deal about uh, introducing the theatrical craft, and in this case, the, um, the film craft, to amateurs, to people who are just putting their, their toes in the water. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I wonder how much um, it would cost to come and see a movie at the Academy. Well, when that uh, Joshua Comes to Town um, project was done. The, um, the pricing in December of 1920 was 55 cents for the main floor and 27 cents for the balcony, which at that time was the big wraparound balcony. Yeah. And then when uh, sound appeared in films or, or talkies, um, and that happened but gradually between 1927 and 1929, uh, pricing for adults was 40 cents and children got in for 25 cents if they were accompanied by a parent <laughs> and then matinees were 25 cents for adults and 15 cents for kids again accompanied um, by a parent right that's that's wonderful all right we're going to talk about um, 100 years ago now August of 1923 patrons of the Academy Theatre retreated to a showing of the women Conquerors. Yes, and when you look at the film industry in the 20s and actually trace a line from that time period right through today, um, it's kind of a poor reflection on 
on maybe the state of our society that we, we focus on some of these things. But starting in the 20s, there's seemingly this uh, great emphasis being placed on the appearance of the performers. And um, in August of 1920, the, the Woman Conquerors, which came out the year before in 1922, starring Catherine MacDonald, um, was, was shown at the theatre. And the, uh, the local newspaper, the Lindsay Daily Post, uh, devoted an entire column to extolling the physical beauty of Ms. MacDonald. Um, and suggested, and I quote, so uh, I'm not making this stuff up, the, the paper suggested that male patrons of the academy may eagerly await the presentation of the woman conquerors in which Catherine MacDonald is starred because the announcement made by Antoinette Donnelly, the famous beauty expert of the Chicago Tribune and the New York News, that Miss MacDonald is, quote, the most beautiful woman in the world, has aroused a new interest in this famous screen star. So people's looks were part of the selling feature of some movies in the 1920s, it seems. And it still is today. Yes. Apparently. That's right. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, take me through the end of the 1920s then, and then uh, hopefully next episode we will uh, talk about the theatre going forward into the 30s and the 40s. Sure. Um, starting again in the, in the 20s, um, almost every week in the paper there would be a, there would be a column on uh, you know, what's new at the movies. And these, uh, these reviews were filled with detail and really enticed people to go down to see a show at the theatre. For example, in 1924, Jesse uh, Lasky's The Covered Wagon, um, which again, I'd never heard of. A lot of these names are pretty obscure to our ears today. Even uh, Catherine MacDonald back then was considered a major screen star, but today is kind of a footnote in cinematic history. But in 1924, the, uh, the local paper gushed about how the director must be credited with the bold imagination and equally daring energy that made this show, The Covered Wagon, possible. Aiding him were an extraordinary group of players, Ernest Torrance, Tully Marshall, Lois Wilson, J.W. Kerrigan, and others sought not individual eminence, but caught the real spirit of the Old West and coordinated their labors with splendid results. Add to the above elements the beautiful orchestration by Dr. Reisenfeld, the masterly conducting of Mr. Gordon, together with the entrancing songs and dances of pioneer days, and tis evident that the covered wagon touches universal heartstrings no less in Lindsay than in New York and Chicago, in which cities it continues to be the ruling sensation. Geez, that is, that is really something. And it's nice to see that the local paper covered all of these uh, features as they go through. Um, in the late 1920s, the jazz singer uh, was here, I know, with uh, Al Jolson, and um, talk about that just a little bit. The jazz singer was the first um, successful film made with sound. There may have been some experimentation uh, going on in the, as early as the 1910s. I know Thomas Edison uh, did a lot of work in this field, but the jazz singer was really the first um, talkie, and uh, thereafter you start to see theaters sort of doing away with their pipe organs and in-house orchestras because you now had sound accompanying the film. Um, but also uh, in that period, um, movies like Broadway Scandals, The Golfers, and The Skeleton Dance, which all came out in 1929, um, 
were beginning to make their presence felt here at the Academy. Two shows took place every evening at 7 and 9 p.m., very much like um, our local movie theater today. And uh, yeah, a whole generation of, uh, of Lindsayites and people from the surrounding area got to, to see the magic of the big screen. That's wonderful. Great stories. I look forward to hearing more in, in uh, the upcoming episodes. Thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Randy. That will do it for episode number 10 of Now and Then, Flato Academy Theater. My name is Randy Reed, and I would like to thank again Jesse Kennedy and Ian McKechnie for being our guests this episode. We will be back in September with all kinds of goodies for you. Have a great rest of the summer, and don't forget, support the arts. It's very important. Mm-hmm.